Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, February 4th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With us after a day's uh, pause, uh, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Thank you guys for those reviews on iTunes. Keep them coming if you haven't done it yet. It's really helpful. It's really nice. It's really ego burnishing, even though there's a lot of comments about how obnoxious I am. But I am willing to suffer the slings and arrows of uh, of you listeners uh, in order to improve our position in the iTunes store. So so keep it coming. Call me obnoxious. That's all well and good. Um, so uh, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times, or it was the worst of times, it was the best of times last night uh, in behind closed doors at the Republican House conference where uh, in a moment of uh, consuming despair for all people who have a brain, uh, House M- Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said that he uh, had accepted an apology from QAnon curious to friendly freshman congressman Marjorie Taylor Greene, and she then gave a speech uh, that we were told represented an apology on her part for some of her past statements and things like that. But then this morning, Adam Kinzinger, the Congressman from Illinois said uh, he didn't hear an apology. So I'm not sure I believe that there was an apology, that this was just some kind of weird uh, spin. And the uh, man without a spine, Kevin McCarthy, then uh, accepted this, uh, whatever it was, and uh, half the Republican conference uh, burst into applause and apparently gave her a standing ovation so that's that's really great for somebody who uh you know abuses an 18 year old kid on the street and claims that the shooting at his school was a false flag operation um uh tweets out anti-semitic stuff likes anti-semitic stuff and believes that um uh what is it that uh, that in the conspiracy uh, that uh, Hillary Clinton uh, scared a child to death uh, in order to produce adrenochrome uh, and then uh, tore the child's face off and put it on her own face. This is something that she apparently thinks is either an interesting theory that uh, we really should um, consider as possible or believes. And uh, this is somebody who gets a standing ovation. So that is the worst of times. And when I say the worst of times, I mean, I don't think we can uh, uh, overstate uh, the seriousness of the threat to the Republican Party and its future from the um, from the acceptance of, of the, this kind of thinking. And then they turn around and uh, the effort to oust Liz Cheney, uh, the number three person in the House Republican leadership, uh, for the evil of her having voted for Trump's impeachment, um, fails by a, a much larger margin than we had been led to believe it would fail by, right? She got, I think, 151 votes for and uh, 60 against, 61 against, something like that. Um, so she won by three to one margin. Uh, 61 against is already depressing enough, but not but not given what we thought was going to happen. She is obviously not being punished. 
for her uh, supposed apostasy or mistreatment, despite what Madame Defarge at the Federalist wants us to think. And and so here we are uh, with a, a good news story that's basically only a good news story because the vote for Liz Cheney was a secret ballot. So we don't know what would have happened if it weren't a secret ballot. Republicans who would want wanted to, who would have voted for impeachment didn't vote for impeachment because they were afraid for their families and themselves and their political futures, and clearly Republicans who uh, those uh, many of those hundred and fifty Republicans who voted for Liz Cheney's continued leadership would have voted to impeach Trump had the political circumstances been different. So that's my, I have now said. So you're in a bit of a raw mood this morning, it sounds. I'm very raw. I mean, I am very raw and we can get to that, you know, in a a minute. Um, Look, far be it from me, the trajectory on which the, of the evolution of the Republican Party is a cause for profound despair, but you might be a little bit hard on uh, Minority Leader McCarthy because he did abandon his sort of wishy-washy equivocating over what Liz Cheney did during the impeachment debate when he's on cable news saying, you know, I have my problems with her, what have you. But in that conference, he delivered what is being described as a fairly impassioned speech, not necessarily in defense of the articles of impeachment and voting for them, but in defense of voting for your conscience. He didn't have to do that. And he did. And it helped probably muster up two thirds of the conference that voted uh, against removing Liz Cheney from leadership. And Liz Cheney will not be removed from le- leadership. And that's something worth celebrating. It is a vote of conscience in a, in a way. And it's it's heartening to a degree. You can We can argue debate degrees, but nobody would debate, would say that it's not heartening if you want a healthy, functional opposition party. Well, and and I mean, to the to the more depressing news about uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, I wonder if her she probably gave the the classic Washington apology, which wasn't an I'm sorry for my terrible judgment and statements, but I'm sorry if you're offended by my terrible judgment and statements, which is why I think you do see, you know, you saw representatives like Dan Crenshaw kind of tweeting out, hey, we need a public statement from her. We need her to publicly acknowledge that the stuff she's saying is conspiratorial and bad and, and harm. Um, and I think they're right to keep that drumbeat going because her sort of equivo- the, the person equivocating there was her. She's like, oh, you know, I'm kind of cute, curious. Maybe I misjudged how serious it was. She should not be allowed to backpedal off of her insane conspiracy theorist endorsement in the same way that we try to hold to account the radical left who, you know, tries to tiptoe back from their, you know, Che and, and uh, Castro were, were lovable, cuddly guys. So we should hold her to account for her for what she's done in, in terms of spreading these theories. But <clears throat> I would go even further. Um, I've got to say, I think the political apology in general is one of the most abused concepts out there. I, I don't even, I don't want her apology in the same way. I don't want or accept an apology from the likes of Ilhan Omar. Um, you, you apologize when you sort of got carried away in a moment and did some harm to someone. You apologize for an action the idea of apologizing for who you are, for your own unfitness, um, is so insufficient um, to the moment and the case. There's no apology that covers the problem. Um, and so an apology serves as a kind of, okay, we can move on. So I, I don't, I, I wouldn't, I don't want that. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's sufficient. 
Look, the apology isn't for her, right? It's for Dan Crenshaw. It's for everybody else in the Republican caucus. When you force people to uh, make a public accounting of their errors and sins, you are doing so not for them and not to purify them or not to give them a chance to, you know, express contrition because uh, contrition is visible when it's real and it doesn't really need a kind of formal process. Um, it is rather to say, uh, you, I need you to start coloring between the lines because your refusal to color between the lines is wrecking my, you know, larger illustration. I don't know where I'm going with this metaphor, <laughs> but um, I, I need you to say that the, that, the, that the normal boundaries of proper conduct are something that you recognize and understand that you violated in a way that harms everybody else, Not even if you don't understand it. You have to do the famous hypocrite thing, which is pay the tribute to virtue. You are the vi- you are you are you are full of vice, and hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. That's the concept of it. But I'm with you. I mean, you know, do, would anybody believe that Marjorie Taylor Greene was sorry? She raised three hundred thousand dollars yesterday. I mean, of course she's not sorry. But Democrats are going to strip her of her committees today. And Republicans are going to have to go on record defending that or, or opposing that. Or Republicans, rather, are going to have to go on record whether they support her or don't. Um, and that's going to be a tough vote for everybody, um, some more than others. Presumably, there's at least 61 votes there because that was the number of people who voted against Liz Cheney. Um, I just suppose that I'm, I'm less in a mood to despair over uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is being relegated to the back bench today, than the exposure of how hollow the support for Donald Trump is in the conference. Donald Trump lobbied publicly for this vote. His members thought they had the votes. They talked about it like they had the votes. They were out there on media saying, we're going to make this happen. And they failed. Dismally. Yeah, but the Cr- reason they the reason- crashed and burned. And that's something that we, that people who appreciate that outcome should be beating them over the head with that. They don't have the power. They think they do. Okay. But let's talk about the laziness of these. What, why did they think they had the votes? You think Matt Gates has spent 11 seconds doing anything but combing his hair? You think he's whipping? You think he's going around twisting arms, having conversations, actually trying to get his colleagues to do things together? He doesn't care about anybody. Yeah, I don't think Matt Gates is, but I, I wouldn't. I would be surprised if Jim Jordan wasn't. I'm sure he didn't. I'm sure he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. That's the whole point about this. This is all, every, all of it is performative. And yeah, Jim Jordan is theoretically a whip, but whatever. So he, you think he was like expending personal political capital to save Marjorie Taylor Greene? He wasn't. He wouldn't do that. It's all. It's all the horse hockey. No, no, no. They were expending personal political capital to to hurt Liz Cheney, to eject Liz Cheney. Okay, that's where the fight was, right. and okay. they lost. Right, but I don't know how much political capital. All they needed to do was say, "We need her expelled." And she should be expelled. This whole question of whether or not anybody in the wider country cares who the number three person is in the Republican conference or that it would matter because it would be a sign about the mania and the, the you know, the sort of the continuing refusal to move on from from the Trump presidency, whatever you want to call it, if she had been expelled. 
Yeah, but here's where Noah's, to Noah's point about how there should be a little more celebrating on the part of those, uh, anyone who believes that this was a good outcome, the Liz, Liz Cheney holding on to her position. It's this, it's because we are already seeing the narrative from the Democratic Party being, oh, look at look at the Republican big tent now. It's full of anti-Semites and conspiracy theorists. That's what they call a big tent. You know, this small this percentage of the party is still horrible and we should be fighting against that. Of course, people need to understand that a certain percentage of either party is full of wackadoodle people like this is I mean, this is the House of Representatives people. I mean, there are crazies on both sides of the aisle and they, they will always form a particular percentage of the caucus. The question is, do they have power? And I think Noah's right that we should celebrate that this was a very strong rebuff of their attempt to have that power. And as performative as I agree, John, they are being, the secret ballot showed that there are a lo- a, quite a few Republicans who, when push comes to shove, are happy to see the backside of the Trump administration in the Trump years. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to raise a lot of money behind this. It's just the, by triggering negative partisanship, she's going to raise a ton of money. She already has and she will. She'll be a formidable force uh, in 2022 when she faces a primary challenge, which she will. But she's going to be stripped of her committees. And that matters. That mattered in Iowa when Steve King was censured and stripped of his committees. He was no longer a relevant political player for his constituents. He couldn't deliver for them. And it mattered. Uh, it wasn't just the statements that he made. It was the fact that he couldn't affect the kind of representation in Congress that they elected him to, to do. I totally disagree. It doesn't matter whether Marjorie Taylor Greene has committee assignments or doesn't have committee assignments. She was not elected to bring home the bacon to her district. She is also in the minority. So, you know, she can't bring home bacon to her district. She is there to go on One American Network and Newsmax and be and be a, 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 an extremist voice. That's what she wants. That's what they want. They have the her her the people, not the people. Who you're contradicting what Eric Erickson has said about this race. A lot of Georgia people have said about this race. Yeah, the theory, their theory is that they don't that the, her constituents weren't aware of this kind of her pattern. Her of constituents. She doesn't care about her constituents. She is a national figure now. No, you think it matters. The question is what she thinks matters. Right. Is she, is she bowing her head down and saying, I really want to study and learn how to be a legislator and 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 do good things for the people of my district? No, she's going on and saying, the mob is trying to cancel me, send me money. That's not the yeah, message her, for her district. Her power does not line the committees. It's <clears throat> It's in her punditry. Is, is essentially what she is. And that's not stripped. If anything, it's... Like it's right. Right. It's, right. It's I'm just saying, if, in a normal political atmosphere, what you are saying would be correct. But there, look, there have always been lunatic backbenchers, right? There was Bob Dornan in the 80s. There was Cynthia McKinney in the 90s. Like there, at, at any given time, with 435 people in Congress, there are going to be you know, at least uh, 5% of them who should be committed to a mental institution. Sometimes you know who they are. Sometimes you don't know who they are because their staffs keep them stuffed in an office and never let them speak. But, I mean, that's just like a just a normal distribution of power in any profession, right? So there are going to be whack jobs, as, as, as Christine said. The problem with Marjorie Taylor Greene is she's not just a whack job. The question is what she represents to the people who don't know her and don't really care. 
does she represent a body of opinion, not just about QAnon, but what does she represent that makes her important, if she's important? A, she's useful for the left and for Democrats to stain the rest of the Republican Party with, and that was just made easier for Democrats by the fact that Republicans could not find a way to even criticizing her, I mean, the party as a whole, much less, you know, punish her or something like that. By the way, I should say, I think it is a terrible slippery slope that Democrats are going down by by punishing her and stripping her of committees. Like if they think that uh, if, if you establish the precedent that you do this against a person in another party <clears throat> on the grounds that they don't make you feel safe, right? Because I, they're not safe. So I don't want to be in a committee with her because she doesn't make me feel safe, which is now language that has moved from the campus to, 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 to the halls of Congress. I mean, this can be done every single Congress by every single majority, find a lunatic and go after them. As long as it's not your lunatic, this, the important thing about Steve King is that he was disciplined by his party. His party was in power. When he lost his committee assignments, he was in the majority. So that's a, that's a, wasn't he? Am I wrong? Maybe I'm wrong. But his own party, his own party stripped him of his authority. It's a different situation when the, if the Democrats are going to go after, are going to pick a Republican and nail her, even if, you know, I think there's every reason. But is this an extraordinary circumstance or isn't it? I mean, you're making the case that this is an extraordinary circumstance, right? I no. think it's a, very, a significant mistake no. to say she represents a body of opinion one way or the other. What she represents is a pole in a cultural fight. That's her value no, for look. both sides of this thing. Not that, 20... not that people have expressed profound, deep, sincere, well-thought-out opinions about QAnon. But she has opportunistically taken up this mantle that Trump, of course, exploited uh, very well in 2016, which is the system is rigged against us. We have, you know, everything that the conspiracy theorizing grows out of a genuine sense of lacking a voice in how the country is run, feeling like you are being, you know, sucker, a sucker and, and that the people in power, whether they're on the left or the right, are working in tandem to uh, consolidate their power and wealth while you fall behind. That she speaks to, and with you know, with Trump off of Twitter and off of the uh, out of the public scene for now, there is that void. We've talked about that void and how there needs to be conservative and and or Republican leadership that steps in and fills it. Cheney was trying to do that a bit, but she, Marjorie Taylor Greene, hits that note and she hits it well. Um, and that is actually still something that there's a there's obviously among the base and not just the crazy people. There's there's a hunger for someone who speaks to that concern. And it right. doesn't. By the way, I need to correct myself. So Steve King was removed from his committee assignments after the Democrats won in 2018, but it was done by the Republican conference. It was not, and the and that analog here. I'm sorry. Let me just. The analog here is when Ilhan Omar. You know, it was revealed that she said the you know uh, the reason that Democrats don't hit Israel harder is all about the Benjamins baby and all of that. And they went into a meeting with the purpose of trying to come up with some way to punish her. And the Democratic caucus said, oh, no, don't you do that. You're not allowed to. And Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer, who wanted to censure her, 
were unable to do so because of the grassroots mood of their own caucus. So, I mean, we do have a, an analog, but we don't have is an analog of the majority party punishing an extremist in the minority party, because when you start playing that game, it will go on forever. Maybe that's good. I don't know. I mean, you know, if they if they try to expel her, that's a different issue because then you start getting into the notion of whether or not people should be removed, you know, whether the voter, the will of the voters of a district should be overturned because of the views, however noxious they are, of the person that they chose to represent them. And so far that's not happening, but you, you can see how it might yet happen. I'm sorry, Abe, go ahead. I was going to respond to Noah's uh, point about um, what she represents. I think, um, you know, the, the kind of sentiment that Christine describes, it doesn't, what does it matter if it's well thought out? <clears throat> um, it's not well thought out. But since when are, you know, massively popular sort of mob mentality movements well thought out? She's not going to get points for, a nuanced debate or scholarship. That's, that's not the, that's not the, the danger. The danger is, is that it's not well thought out and that it's, it is still a very real force. Um, so listen, uh, let me just, uh, tell you guys a little bit here about, uh, our first sponsor today, our friends at the Tikva fund. Are you an undergraduate or a recent college graduate, or do you know someone who is? The Tikva Fund's Barron Summer Fellowship is a unique opportunity for conservative-minded students to study the character of American democracy, Zionism, and Jewish history, political philosophy, and Jewish literature. You can learn with, and all of these people are commentary contributors, teachers like Yuval Levin, Ruth Weiss, Eric Cohen, Mayor Soloveitchik, and many more leading American Jewish writers and thinkers. Fellows will also conduct their own research project. With the help of Tikva and its partners, the fellowship takes place over eight weeks in the summer in New York City, and all fellows will receive a generous stipend. The Barron Summer Fellowship offers unparalleled opportunities for learning and intellectual growth, mentoring and career networking, and the chance to join a community of like-minded peers. Visit tikvafund.org slash college. That's T I K. V-A-H-F-U-N-D dot org slash college to see all of Tikva's offerings for college students and recent graduates and apply to the Summer Fellowship. And don't forget to mention commentary when you apply for a chance to win a free book, courtesy of Tikva. Visit tikvafund.org slash college to apply today. And really, if you're listening to my voice and you fit this category, you would be a moron not to apply to this. It's fantastic and you get some money and assuming that the virus allows it to happen, you can get the hell out of wherever you are and come to New York for a couple of months and study with Ruth and study with uh, with Sully and study with Yuval and study with Eric and have just a great uh, burnishing intellectual experience and cultural experience and meet people that you will probably interact with for the rest of your life if you want to labor in the fields in which we do here at Commentary. So tikvafund.org slash college. Um, so the future of the Republican Party uh, and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, we had a little uh, we had a little debate amongst ourselves yesterday about a poll that came out from Monmouth on um, getting vaccinated, 
And I have to say that this, more than anything else, uh, even more than the Marjorie Taylor Greene thing, filled me with a kind of new despair that I had not recently experienced, uh, despite all of the despair that you can, the crushing morosity you can hear in my voice, where, uh, according to this new Monmouth poll on taking the coronavirus vaccine, Democrats, 64% say they will as soon as they are allowed, 16% say see how likely it goes, 10% likely never. Republicans, 35% as soon as allowed, 17% see how it goes, 42% likely never. Now, 42% of the Republicans polled in a poll, a national poll, on the question of whether or not they would take a coronavirus vaccine, a vaccine that has now been administered in the country of Israel to something like 25% of the population with no fatalities from, uh, from, the, from taking the vaccine and an incredible reduction in the death rate and the, and the, and the uh, immiseration and sickness rate in Israel as a, just simply as a, as a controlled experiment. 40, more than 40% of Republicans say they will never take the vaccine. Uh, I, so does this mean basically that, uh, I, I can't go speak before Republican groups if I'm ever invited, which is probably unlikely after I say what I'm about to say, because I don't want to go somewhere and like get sick and die. Well, you'll get the vaccine, but I'm just saying like, what, what is this the price of the ticket for the party having supported Trump, Trump? developed Operation Warp Speed to push the vaccine. What well, I, is going this on? Is why it, it wasn't much of a debate, what you're describing. We were going back and forth. is just how much despair you should have over this development. And I think um, my my point and Abe's point in that discussion was that it's, it's not a well-thought-out position. It has nothing to do with the vaccine. It is like all things, and why polls are terrible now a proxy for presidential job approval. It's not as though Republicans have a have a, a, a learned understanding of the economy when their approval of the economy collapses following the inauguration of a president they didn't vote for. It's just they don't like the president anymore. And everything that could be construed as a vote of confidence in that president is um, is subsumed into this uh, into this you know gaming of, of polls. And we saw the precise thing, same thing happen with Democrats with regard to the vaccine. Back in September, I think it was Pew, found that 65% of respondents believe that the, the vaccine was rushed, including 77% of, of Democratic voters. And that increased dramatically as you had Democratic of public officials, people like Andrew Cuomo and Kamala Harris saying, well, I don't know, this thing might be rushed. Donald Trump is in the basement whipping up this vaccine. They're just taking their cues. And, they, and, don't have, they don't have a well-thought-out well idea of how this vaccine works. They're just expressing tribal solidarity. And the most persistent vaccine skeptics are actually also uh, correspond more with Democratic voters than not. That's African-American voters. I mean, there's been a solid, like, between 30 and 40 percent from Kaiser Family Foundation polls and other polls that have showed, regardless of who was the president at the time, pretty deeply rooted skepticism and actually vaccine rates currently reflect that far more white Americans are getting vaccinated than African-Americans. And it's not just because of access to the vaccine. It's because of this skepticism. So I think framing it as Republicans have lost their minds and they're so crazy they won't even get vaccinated is is 
too apocalyptic because we have to step back and, and broaden the view and see that there are all kinds of subgroups that have this kind of skepticism, all of which is bad. Like we, everybody needs to go and get their shot, but that it's not necessarily a partisan, uh, long-term partisan problem. And I, okay, go ahead. Sorry. But, but also just to get into the, um, not only do I not trust the respondents to the polls, to this poll, but um, I'm not going to go back to trusting the, the methodology of polls either. I mean, um, it is it is the case that um, these polls always turn up very useful results, and it is very and in the same direction, and it is very useful, as Christine says, to to come up with a with a with a bunch of figures that that cast the uh, Republicans as crazy on this. And um, in addition to there being um, this well documented problem uh, among African Americans not wanting to take the vaccine. They get a lot of cover from their political allies uh, who are not uh, skeptical of the vaccine, but who may, who furnish who furnish every type of excuse and justification for being skeptical of vaccines. We we don't need a poll for that. We we see that in the, in the pages of the New York Times uh, and and publications and on television all the time. Well, and worse, there are actual people of other races who will be who are. Uh, delayed from getting the vaccine because to cater to that group that is so skeptical, you know, white people in DC and certain zip codes are not allowed to register for appointments when appointments are released until they're registered first the zip codes that are predominantly black. I mean, it's actually affected how the vaccine is being distributed in certain areas. Okay, so let me let me let me just uh, brush back a little. Uh, I looked up uh, the poster ratings of the Mon- of Monmouth on five thirty eight, which admittedly is a poll friendly site, but they do do kind of like they do a systematic survey of the, of the partisan bias. And it has a partisan bias toward the Democrats, but the bias is like, is like a 2% or a little less than 2%. Um, what, what we saw here is uh, more Republicans in this poll. And let's say there were 300 of them just for the, to pick a number out of the air. Uh, more Republicans said they would not never take the virus than they would take the virus. The I don't think they made those numbers up, okay? I don't think those numbers, I don't think Monmouth invented the numbers. They asked people, would you take it as soon as you can? Would you wait to see how it goes? Or would you never take it? Now, I could understand if people said we'd wait to see how it goes, if they're skeptical and they worried that the virus is going to make, that the vaccine might make them sick, even though I think that's crazy. But nonetheless, that's not the position that was taken. The position that was taken was, I will never take a vaccine. I will never take the vaccine. Now, Noah's right that this is a reflection of negative partisanship and, and polarization. I, I'm absolutely sure that's the case. But it has real-world consequences. I mean, I don't know what those people are going to, you know, Does I don't think they'd say this about the flu shot. They're saying it about the coronavirus vaccine, which has a, which there is an almost national obligation for everybody who can take it to take it so that we can reach herd immunity and get the hell out of this um, you know, uh, a slough of despond that we... Okay, so what do you it. make of Republicans who said they would take the vaccine when Trump was president, but won't take it now? Did they... I mean, some of them probably got the vaccine because there's been 30 million people who got the vaccine. Do they think they regret it? 
do you think do you think these but people I mean, I mean, yeah, this, yeah, it's just I, not a reasoned position it's not it, it doesn't reflect reality it but, reflects uh, it reflects what they want to express to pollsters but this is the maddening part about this i understand i believe that i wrote something about this that basically uh people don't want to give don't understand they're more sophisticated than you know even if they're crazy and they don't want to give pollsters the answer pollsters want to give them although now i think as, as abe would say uh by not giving them the answer that they don't want to give them they're giving the pollsters the answer that the pollsters want right which is to say that republicans and conservatives are all crazy um and and dangerous and dangerous to their fellow americans and all that so uh yeah but uh people do sometimes put their money where their mouth is sometimes they don't uh, I can imagine that, you know, come if they have to go to a doctor, you know, once this kind of lightens up the sort of the vaccine, the vaccine, you know, the fact that there's more demand than supply, when that starts reversing itself, and I get every doctor has the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in their office because it can be stored at normal temperatures, and you go in to see your doctor because you have a cold or, you you know, you need something, and the doctor says, let me just give you, did you t- have you had the coronavirus vaccine? Let me just give it to you before you leave the office. The way they say that to you about the flu vaccine, if you go to the doctor in the fall, I have it here, let me just give it to you. Okay, here you go, and you're done. Are they going to refuse it, stand up and walk out and be angry? Probably not. But I don't know. Like, uh, you know, once again, we under we both overestimate the importance of somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene, and we underestimate it in this sense. We overestimate it because she has no political power, really. She's not doesn't have a program. She's not going to pass legislation. She's not going to change the country in any way. We underestimate it because we always we we have we should have learned from Trump in 2016 and learned from Ilhan Omar's support and all of that that extremist views in the United States are embraced by more people than we realize. They really are, and that that more people could just be 15 million people out of 330 million. So in percentage terms, it's five percent. But 15 million people is a larger population than many countries on this earth. And they're all free and they all have incomes and they can all express themselves culturally, unlike people in other countries. And they, and so we are on the, you know, we're on a kind of knife's edge about uh, this country dissolving into manifestly neurotic to schizophrenic irresponsibility. And it is being led at this moment by the right and not the left. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a version on the left that we've been talking about with regard to pandemic lockdowns and keeping schools closed and a kind of a total rejection of science in the same way that refusing to get vaccinated is a rejection of scientific evidence. So I think that, I mean, I I do want to say nothing of a quasi-religious worldview that maintains the United States is entirely illegitimate and evil. Exactly. So I think which pervades every aspect of society and defies any rationality whatsoever. Well, and so that in some ways you have to question how much of this kind of current moment with its skepticism about, you know, vaccines, its its embrace of conspiracy theorists, is a kind of excessive response to both the particular moment and the lockdowns and all the stuff we've been talking about for months, but also to, as Noah points out, this new way of reframing our history and our culture and what this country actually stands for. In some ways, you could see it 
as crazy as it is, as a as a response to the crazy that they feel they're confronting and are told that they are, you know, part of. Okay, but so let let's split this up this way. Uh, I'm next to no one in my loathing and detestation of critical race theory, the 1619 project, the effort to, you know, uh, brand America as evil and all of that. I don't think that that is crazy. I think it's evil, but I think it's purposeful and it is driven by bad, disgusting ideas and that the people who hold them are not crazy. They are malign. Or they are diluted in a different kind of way, but the ideas themselves are at root not bonkers. They are destructive and awful and nihilistic and false, but they're not crazy. QAnon is crazy. It posits that there is a world of, you know, there is a child, a worldwide child prostitution ring that is killing children in order to have them produce something in their blood that makes it possible for you to live forever. It's a zombie vampire um, movie plot that is believed now by tens of millions of people. And that's crazy. So what's worse? And and it's evil in its own way, but the root is the craziness, not the evil. So what's worse? I mean, there's better or what's worse? There's there's an element of being deliberately provocative in your embrace of these sort of things and being just existing as a, somebody who's willing to be crazier than the next guy, which I think is attractive to a certain element of the coalition, both coalitions, just being more zealous in your embrace of whatever theory, whatever philosophy, whatever policy prescription um, that prevails at the moment just marks you. It doesn't matter what it is. It just marks you as being more committed to the cause. And that is, it, it, there's an element of that that is attractive, I think in this particular moment. There's I, also, I, there's also a bit of, I mean, to the, not, not, I'm not trying to make this an equivalence, but on the left, and I know this because I had to deal with it with some of the stuff that, ahead, you know, the public schools shoved down my kids' throats, but there's a whole theory about magical melanin on the on the kind of critical race theory left that embraces the idea that actually there is racial superiority the more melanin you have in your skin. And there are theories about this. We have seen, you know, kind of occasional little mini scandals erupt about the writings of people who are now being appointed to top positions in the Biden administration or who are, you know, prominent journalists who embrace this in their young radical years. So there is, and I think that's also equally nuts. Like it's, it's basically a, a zombie version of critical race theory. So the, these, these, to Noah's point, I think that's right. There's a way of like, I've got to push the envelope. I've got to be the most extreme um, that is appealing, and that's particularly appealing at a time where polarization is already high. And to have your voice heard, you've really got to shout. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, I, I think John, your distinction is is valid, but um, the deep anti-Americanism and um, sort of uh, victimhood uh, identity politics stuff that goes along with it gets you to crazy. It, it may not start. Uh, its its inception may not be as crazy as QAnon, but you know if you, when you end up saying you know my pronouns are it they or you know what whatever else that's 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 crazy. There there is there is an element of um, 
defying reality to all of it. It gets you to the it gets you to the ACLU saying that if you're born female, it's the same as right. being born male. Literally, they have a whole. And, you don't. <laughs> you don't necessarily have to believe it or subscribe to it, but you you do have to entertain it if you want to be taken seriously by the people you want to be taken seriously by. You have to be more. You have to at least be open to the craziness, because if you're not, that that just marks you as somebody who's who's uh, you know the squishy in a quiz line. Well, that's, but that's, so if that's your analysis, <clears throat> that's even worse. But, but the point In that I'm words, making is that the views are not deeply held. They're not first principles. It's a posture. I don't know. The question is once you start, once you start entertaining unreality as a, as a new reality, uh, when, how do you go back? How do you get back to reality? You know, you hear these, you know, there's all this bizarre, uh, patronizing liberal nonsense over the last couple of months about how to get people out of the clutches of these terrible ideas. You know, listen to them without judgment. And, you know, don't don't criticize their views or argue with them, but try to get them to tease them out. And then you sh- try to show them, but just some, some, by sympathetic listening, that their idea that everybody who doesn't agree with them isn't evil and uh, blah, and there should be a reality czar. I don't know what the hell it is that they're talking about. Because, of course... All of that is like the is like parenting advice when people say, "Here's what you do when your child is having a tantrum." Say, "I understand you're upset." You know, it's like that. Yeah. Well, have you ever had a child who's having a tantrum? That doesn't work. Let me just tell you. Maybe it makes you feel better, <clears throat> but it doesn't work. Once you are willing to say, "Are you going to take the blue pill or the red pill or whichever one?" I can't remember the Matrix thing. Once you take the the pill that shows you that you're a battery in a big machine and not actually living in reality and you see it, can you unsee it? Once you start thinking, you know, it is possible that Hillary Clinton was running a pedophilia ring that wanted to uh, create horror in children so that she could suck the adrenochrome out of their bodies, whatever the hell adrenochrome is. Do you then go, ah, well, you know what? That was, I got, that was fun for a while, but now I'm, you know, going to go back and believe normal things. I don't know. I don't. I, I honestly, I don't know. Okay, but we're told when 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 the crazy on the other side is is brought up and shown, you know, like look, this person who has a very uh, powerful perch at the New York Times used to say that you know white people are literally devils. We're told that you can you can think your way and rationalize your way away from these irrational ideas. So we either. We, and look, I have to accept that and, and hope that that's the case because I see a lot of crazy race theory stuff that I really hope people don't believe because it would, the logical conclusion of that is race war and we really don't want that. And I don't think most people want that either. So right. I really want to believe that you can de-radicalize people away from the extremes of that. Um, and here's an example. So the, the part of the crazy Hillary Clinton pedophile ring conspiracy theory played out, as we know, a few years back. Uh, in a neighborhood not far from where I live, where there was a Comet Pizza, where they thought there was a basement full of, you know, child slaves. The guy who went there with a gun and tried to shoot the place up and who was, you know, thankfully uh, arrested without anyone being harmed, said pretty quickly thereafter, as they start questioning him, he's like, wow, you know, I went down this internet rabbit hole and I really believe this stuff and I really care about the kids. I just wanted to help these kids. It was terrible. And he was, you know, it sounded crazy, but then he pretty quickly said, I guess I had a lot of bad information. And it didn't take him that long to get from, 
I'm going to risk my own life and risk getting, you know, shot by police to save these innocent children, I believe, are being held in a basement of a, of a pizza place that didn't even have a basement to, oh, gee, that was some bad information. So I even the extremists can be de-radicalized. And we have to hope that that's possible on both sides of the aisle. Look, we know when you when you talk about the, you know, the people who say crazy things in college, we know that people mature and, and, and their views alter over over time as they meet reality. People change uh, or moderate or deepen their faith, uh, their connection to whatever religion they were brought up in, or sometimes they reject it. It's sometimes they you know, their political views alter as the world gets more complicated for them in both directions and all of that. Like, that's maturation. I'm sort of talking about something else, which is that uh, there is a bright dividing line. I mean, you could say this about uh, religion, except, of course, that religion and major faiths uh, are, 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 are perpetual transcendent ideas. But these people cross the line into a new exp- new theory of everything that says uh, the reality that we are living in is not the reality, there's not real reality. There is a reality behind the reality. Uh, it's the novels of Philip K. Dick. It's a whole worldview. It's a whole thing. Very po- Thomas Pynchon. I mean, there's a whole world of this notion that the, what we see in front of us is not real. And, and there is something else going on, and they are manipulating us into seeing it this way. And Philip K. Dick, who is the great literary postulant of this view, was a schizophrenic. He ended his life as a paranoid schizophrenic. And so and his work is brilliant, uh, though the later work is almost impossible to read. But his work is brilliant because it is a very seductive idea. And everybody has some truck with it, right? You're often told that you're supposed to believe things that you don't really believe or that, and and you sort of go along with it. Like we're asking Marjorie Taylor Greene to apologize for believing the things that she actually believes. But, oh, go ahead, Abe. Well, <clears throat> it's just that I, I think there is also um, a, that seed of, of unreality is also at the heart of extreme leftism and it has always been. Um, it is. Right. It, it also depicts a world um, that's hidden beneath the surface. Um, um, and when your consciousness gets right, um, much of the architecture of the world that you see before you will melt away, um, right. including governments. And you know, uh, and uh, seas will turn to lemonade, as as, as was once. Predicted. Yeah, Charles Fourier, yeah, yeah the, the, the one of the early socialists. Yeah, and if that, you just do everything according to socialist principles. Yeah, the sea will transform. And, and, it, and it is still in there. It is still in um, extreme leftism, in the kind of identity stuff that we're uh, uh, talking about. It's 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 sort of pumped up with a lot of uh, pseudo social science, you know, around it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I think there is an element of the crazy that's always been there. And there's a certain, it's definitely the religiosity to it. But the democratization of the crazy is, is, is what's, is what's the mass spread of the crazy is new. And when I mean new, I don't mean like you can claim that like certain types of extreme religious revivals may be versions of this, or, you know, the, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, which was the title of a book about financial panics in the 19th century. Um, 
But the fact that all of this is perpetuated now in our isolation, in our homes, through through this machine that we are right now communicating on and recording this podcast on and all of that, just changes the intent, the, the intensity, the experience, the way the information is delivered, the the uh, the how much is flooded, how much you are flooded with, that makes the quantity appear to be quality. I don't know. I I'm, I have no answer to this. It's just a terribly disheartening set of circumstances that leads the one of the most powerful people in America, the leader of the Republican Party and the House of Representatives, to be scared shitless of a 46-year-old CrossFit trainer who got herself, uh, you know, one uh, nomination to a safe Republican seat in a field of 10 people. He is scared shitless of her, Kevin McCarthy. I mean, this is this is real. Like, that is a real uh, phenomenon. We're out of Plato's cave. He may be in it, but we are living in a reality in which the second most powerful Republican in elected politics is terrified of a lunatic who was nobody nowhere 12 months ago. Well, and Pelosi is terrified of an anti-Semite who is part of a squad that that strikes fear into to her heart in terms right, of doing absolutely. her job. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. it's... Absolutely. Yeah. So we are, this, is, this is a terrible... <laughs> this is where we are in our politics. Um, but as I say, I, I think I, I think that Marjorie Taylor Greene's ideas are evil, but I think that they're basically they are they are the result of craziness, and I think that uh, Ilhan Omar's ideas are evil, and they are the result of evil. Like they are not, you know, there there's no excuse to be had, uh, you know, seventy five years after the Holocaust in engaging in uh, in ideas that you know Jewish control of the world needs to be stopped by whatever means necessary. Except, um, I mean. I mean, that gets into a complicated yeah. area because I think anti-Semitism is a kind of craziness also. Um, it is it is, it is a, it certainly can be a paranoid worldview. And particularly in Ilhan Omar's case, I mean, when she says things like Israel hip- hypnotized the world not to see its evil, I, I, I think she means that literally. Um, or, or there's certainly a long provenance of, of, of people meaning that literally. I mean, uh, you know... It's almost a semantic. It's almost a semantic question when you're talking about the world's oldest conspiracy theory and its most destructive form of you know of, of hatred to say that you know it's basically crazy. I mean, it's somehow it, it it deserves to be considered at a different level simply by virtue of its of its uh, of its age of its age. Somehow, I don't. I, yeah. I don't have an answer no, for that. There, there's but, a way that yeah. calling it crazy kind of gets it off the hook. It, it puts it into right. It, it sort of takes it out of the evil category, and it and it shouldn't right. be right. Right. Okay. So, guys, um, here's an interesting question that I never thought about before. Why are 97 percent of the chickens served in the U.S. dipped in chlorine? Simple, because big food doesn't have the same quality standards as the family farm. That's why you need. Moinkbox.com. Moinkbox.com. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door, helping family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. Their animals are raised outdoors, their fish swim wild in the ocean, and Moink meat 
is free of antibiotics, hormone sugar, and all the other junk you find prepackaged in the meat aisle. Sign up at moinkbox.com slash commentary to get a year of ground beef for free and then pick what meats you want delivered with your first box. Change what you get each month and cancel anytime. Moink was founded by an eighth generation farmer who was featured on Shark Tank. Host Kevin O'Leary said it was the best bacon he's ever tasted. And Jamie Simonoff, creator of the Ring Video Doorbell, invested in Moink. So listen, join the Moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash commentary right now. And listeners to this show will get free ground beef for a year. That's one year of the best ground beef you'll ever taste, but for a limited time. Spelled M-O-I-N-K, box.com slash commentary. That's moinkbox.com slash commentary. So uh, the Democrats have embraced uh, radical extremism in the form of anti-Semitism and, 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 are, you know, po- and Nancy Pelosi is posing on covers of magazines uh, with the monstrous Ilhan Omar. And Kevin McCarthy is uh, standing there while Marjorie Taylor Greene gets a standing ovation. So can someone say any, anybody, I, I'm putting it on the spot, say something good about like where we are. Can we say anything good about where we are? I mean, we did. I did. No, <laughs> That's I mean, true. I don't mean that. I don't mean like, yeah, it's okay. I mean like pull out and let, let's come up with something positive to talk about for five seconds. COVID cases are down. Uh, vaccinations. By half. Yeah. By half over, over a month ago. Vaccinations continue with pace, although the, the pace has slowed a little, uh, presumably because of the weather. Um, right. A little. It's back. It was back up yesterday. Yeah. Can I say I was watching the Today Show this morning and uh, they had this uh, uh, cre- credulous story on about, you know, vaccination problems and all of this. And they're like, but the Biden administration is now ramping up and it's creating new vaccination centers everywhere in order to make sure that we reach their goal of 100 million vaccinations in 100 days. But we're on a pace to beat 100 million vaccinations in 100 days before any of these vaccination centers open. So at what point are they going to up the target? Are they going to up the target? Or are they literally playing this incredibly cynical game where they're going to claim, you know, like uh, that they, they were the Manhattan Project of vaccinations with the same pace that was in place before they took over. The latter. It's going to be the latter. But but here, here's another glimmer of hope, um, although it's it's mired in a lot of uh, fighting and political positioning. More uh, rebellion against teachers unions keeping schools closed. We're seeing more and more of this everyday new uh, kind of pressure brought to bear to get kids back in the classroom. And right now, and I will be very interested to see how this is resolved, if it is resolved by the Biden administration, the Biden administration is in exactly the position that that mainstream media was constantly harping on Trump for being, which is it is in direct opposition to the scientific advice of the head of the CDC about reopening schools. It's claiming, oh, we need plans. We're not sure. The CDC reiterated uh, that the uh, head of the CDC went on television last night and reiterated we need to open schools. It's safe to open schools uh, without vaccinating teachers. Yeah, this that's is the Biden CDC director. Exactly. And so that's she's saying, she that's not saying, the guy with yes. that's not the Sierra Coop knockoff. No, no this, is, this is his CDC director saying, even without total vaccination of teachers, it is safe to return students to the classroom with, with a, you know, a modicum of uh, precautions in place. So that is a shot across the bow in, in terms of the messaging that the Biden administration has been trying to dance around on the head of a pin with regard to the teachers unions. I personally, because this is, uh, as our long-suffering listeners know, a hobby horse of mine, but I am very eager to see that play out in the next few weeks. 
for the sake of I the mean, kids Biden, to be in school. Joe Biden's going to have to go to war with President Klain at some point um, because it doesn't seem like anyone is interested in pursuing what Joe Biden has promised to pursue in his administration. The the chief of staff does seem to be very interested in, in pandering to the teachers' unions. I have a hobby horse that makes me happy that I want to um, offer as a uh, a little bit of uh, a positive development is that it doesn't seem to be the case that Space Force is going anywhere. I have been saying for quite some time, since the minute it was announced, that a, a, a branch of the military dedicated to the theater of war that is low Earth orbit, it has been a theater of war for quite some time, acknowledging it as such and creating a new branch dedicated to that theater is uh, a benefit it was met with a lot of very cheap mockery from just about every corner of popular culture and on the left, um, and, and up to and including a Netflix series that was really bad. And um, the uh, press secretary, Jen Psaki, her, her instinct when asked about this was to make fun of it. And then she had to go on Twitter and walk it back and say, you know, we invited our members of Face, Space Force to you know, co- provide whatever information they have to, to the general press. It wasn't mockery at that point. It, it somehow became very serious because everybody who knew anything about anything knew that this was real and serious and necessary and that the cheap um, uh, lampooning of this idea was uh, really shallow and intellectually unserious. And it's nice to see that exposed no you know there's a you mentioned the netflix series space force with steve carell and that series is very interesting uh, I, watched, I tried to watch it i no, got I, like four or five episodes in no but here it just was boring but here's why i agree with you i don't think it was very good but clearly the idea was they wanted to make a wildly parodic show about a lunatic trump idea and make fun of it and have this whole, have a martinet and, you know, like to have it all be very, very silly. And I think as they researched it and put it together and wrote it, they themselves abandoned their initial concept. It's one of the reasons that the show is like neither fish nor fowl because Carell's head of Space Force is an admirable character and an admirable person and the idea that what they are doing is training for some kind of you know is 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 serious ends up coloring a lot of what goes on the show and it kind of drained it of any you know drained it it's not like mash it's not like you know it's not like a service comedy and it's sort of nothing because they couldn't in the end pull it off because they had some meeting with somebody who said, do you know what's going on? And do you know, understand that in, 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 in low Earth orbit, um, there are, you know, 500 satellites and uh, they run the communications of the planet and disable a couple of them. And, you know, and half of them can be transformed into kill vehicles already. And, 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 all this, and it's thing. like, really? I just thought it was Donald <laughs> Trump being stupid. Oh, yeah, so it's, you know. People who tried to be serious yeah. about this argument were like, ah, it's a waste of money. This yeah. deserves to be relegated to the, to the uh, Air Force, yeah. which is the same arguments that people made about the U.S. Army Air Corps. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, why do we need an Air Force? So you remember, The Army does yeah. all this. So you remember that um, uh, so Larry King died, what, last week? So I was a big listener to the Larry King radio show, which I was an insomniac, and Larry King was on from 12 to 5 in the morning, and I used to listen. 
And the night of the uh, State of the Union that Reagan delivered, in which he announced the Strategic Defense Initiative, right, which was almost interesting, almost immediately, you know, mocked as Star Wars by William Broad, the the science correspondent of the New York Times, and stuff like that. And Larry King spent five hours one night, or some version of five hours one night, mocking and making fun. So, oh, and there's Star Wars. We are going to do this. Right. And um, and he went on and on and on and on and on. And there was music behind. It was all very parodic and, you know, scornful and all of this. Right. And then five years later, the Soviet Union collapsed. And Mikhail Gorbachev said it was because of Star Wars. So, you know, he said basically the the fact that we were so technologically behind. Uh, behind the the West, uh, you know, caused me to go with Perestroika, which led to Glasnost, which led to, you know, basically the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, anti-ballistic missile technology is is was in its infancy at the time, and it's it's matured substantially, and it right. it's, it has great promise. And a lot of that frustration I'm was raising it. I'm not even praising it. I'm just saying that this notion that liberal scorn at militaristic blah, blah, blah. They still, but that's still predicated on a, on a flawed assumption about what even, how even Reagan felt about nuclear weapons and nuclear technology. They, right. they still maintain that he was infatuated with these things. Yeah. He was horrified by them. Yeah. No, he wanted way, them gone. Yeah, he offered was, a complete yeah. dissolution of the of entire American nuclear arsenal. Yeah, and was serious about it. Yeah, in a way, in a way that uh, the neocons of a different generation thought that he was being childish and stupid, because they weren't going to go anywhere. And you can't don't walk around being a utopian. You know, this is something the Russians are going to are going to take advantage of us. But uh, but and his purpose wasn't to end the Soviet Union by destroying by having it uh, go through a crisis of con- confidence so extreme that it would introduce the very notes uh, that were going to destroy it, you know, uh, from the inside. But that was just something that happened. Um, And uh, one thing, if you're worried about the role that we've been talking about today, about the internet and the role it plays in our lives, just remember social media and big tech are trying to curb our rights and freedoms by attempting to deplatform speech they don't agree with. Um, why give the left just what they wanted in the first place by deactivating your social media accounts and going silent instead of letting them try to control your speech, revoke their right to your data. That's what I do by protecting my online data by using ExpressVPN. Keep social media companies away from my searches, my video history and everything I click on and, and won't let them sell my valuable data as a result. Because when you use ExpressVPN, you anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your IP address. That makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. What's more, ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your data to protect you from eavesdroppers on your network, and the ExpressVPN app couldn't be easier to set up. You just tap one button on your phone and computer, and you're protected. It's finally time to say no to censorship and take back your online privacy with the VPN I trust at expressvpn.com slash commentary. By visiting my link, you'll get an extra three months of ExpressVPN service for free. Again, that's expressvpn.com slash commentary, expressvpn.com slash commentary to protect your data today. 
So uh, once again, we have kept our listeners longer than they have any reason to have listened to us. Uh, maybe we took a turn toward the positive at the end, but you know that's all that's all fake because we are, of course, the crushing morosity. Totally podcast. off brand. Again, I have good news for everybody. That merch is coming. We're going to have crushing morosity merch and keep the candle burning merch. Two shirts, t-shirts, and sweatshirts in large and extra large. Where we will. We'll be introducing this, I think, next week. We got to put up a page and got to get the stuff made. And but we have designs, and it all looks great. And it's going to cost a lot of money to buy these t-shirts and sweatshirts because we're getting high quality stuff, and we're not going to make much money on it. But we wanted to provide you, the listener, with the ability to walk around wherever you are and make sure that everybody knows that you listen to this uniquely neurotic podcast. So. With that, uh, I'll I'll keep you posted on that. Thank you again for the for the reviews on iTunes and for Noah, Christine, and Abe. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.